0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ring of Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio,
2: a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC.
0: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with $25,000 Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
2: It is Thursday, May 11th. One of the big issues in this writer's strike is the path to success for writers in television. There's the traditional route, Let's say Craig starts as a writer's assistant on a show, then graduates to staff writer when it's a hit. Then he gets his own episode, becomes a co-executive producer, then executive producer, then a showrunner. Then ultimately Craig creates his own show, probably starring Anna de Armas. The path to success in TV is much more difficult now in this new streaming economy, or at least that's what the Writers Guild argues. The shows don't last enough seasons to enable that growth. When there's only eight episodes of a season, you're much less likely to get to write one of those episodes. Plus, the streamers do things now, like these mini-rooms, which often is a truncated writer's room to create story beats, which are then handed off to a couple experienced producers, and the writers aren't even on set. It's a tough situation, and one the Guild wants to remedy. But on the studio side, they argue that these are macro business issues that go way beyond this Writer's Guild negotiation. The TV business is just so different now, because the primary success metric for these global streaming services is subscriber acquisition and retention not the traditional advertising and secondary sales of the content. So naturally, there are fewer episodes and writers are going to be paid differently and for different tasks. That's the argument. After all, the studios note, there are more writers working in television today than there ever have been, thanks to Peak TV and all the streaming services that need shows now. If there's a guy who epitomizes that traditional path to success, it's probably Mike Schur. Mike began his writing career at Saturday Night Live in the late 90s. Then he came to LA and got a job in The Office rose to an EP. He got one of those really lucrative studio deals and has either created or co-created some of my favorite comedies of the past decade. Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, as well as EPing shows like Master of None and Hacks. He's got a new show on Amazon Freebie called Primo. He's also on the WGA Negotiating Committee. So lots to talk about with Mike about career opportunities and what's at stake in this strike. Has the TV writer's life really gotten so bad? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Mike Shore, who is the executive producer of the new Amazon freebie show, Primo, and he's on the WGA negotiating committee. Doubly relevant today. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So I want to talk to you today about the life of the writer, the TV writer in particular, because you are by most measurements, the success story. You got your start working on SNL. You worked your way up. I'm looking at your guild statement that you put on the website. It says, I have watched as the blueprint for writing careers in television has been completely upended by smaller orders, capped writer budgets, and the inability of young writers to gain meaningful experience in all phases of production. So does that mean that a guy like you, who is clearly monster talented is not going to rise through the ranks like he once did. Well, thank you. But
1: yes, this is my exact fear. I came out here. I worked on SNL for six and a half years. I came out to LA. My first job was on the office. Greg Daniels took three completely inexperienced writers, me, mid Kaling BJ Novak. None of us had ever written anything for like, you know, episodic television. He taught us every part of the job. He taught us how to write, rewrite, how to be on the set, talk to actors, talk to directors, rewrite for production. He taught us how to edit, how to sound mix, how to color, correct all of the parts of the job that you need to succeed. And now the entire system has been compartmentalized. So first of all, instead of 22, you're doing six or eight or whatever. You do all the writing and then all the writers leave. Then you do all the shooting and then all all those people leave. Then you do all the editing and then you do all the post stuff. And as a result, the young version of me, the 25-year-old version of me, their entire job is being in a writer's room for maybe 10 weeks and writing scripts. That's not the job of showrunning at all. It's not nothing close. It's a it's one-fifth of the job of showrunning. So my great fear is that the folks who are the next generation of showrunners, the next group of people who have ideas in their brains that want to be that, that can be turned into great television shows. They're just not learning how to do the job. And so, you know, a lot of the proposals the guild has are corrective measures to try to say, look, the experience of learning how to do this requires you. It's a requirement that you be on the set, that you work with actors and directors, that you understand how physical production works, that you know how to talk to costumers and and set decorators and, and location managers and all that sort of stuff. And then that you edit and then that you color correct and sound mix and do all that stuff that is not possible anymore on this show. Primo that I just, that's coming out in a week or so. It was the same thing. I mean, we were doing it over zoom because it was the pandemic, but we shot in Albuquerque. We personally flew out the writers to Albuquerque to have them be on the set. They weren't paid to be on the set. but We were like, you guys have to come. They're all young writers. We're like, you have to see this. You have to understand how this works. So we flew them out to Albuquerque when their episodes were shooting so that they could just be there absorbing the information they needed to absorb That's
2: not a viable long-term solution for how to teach people how to run shows. So just playing devil's advocate here, the studios would say, well, you know what? The business is the business and things evolve. And, you know, these shorter episode orders are part of a macro trend here. They can't stay stuck in the 90s and 2000s. The business evolves. And these shows, because of the economics of streaming and the metric being subscriber acquisition, they're necessarily going to be shorter shows because they want to move on to the next one that's going to acquire more subscribers. How do you counter that? That you're essentially, I mean, the analogy would be the, you know, the auto worker. If you are a auto parts plant in Michigan, you'd love to make gas powered engines forever, but the EVs require different parts, fewer parts. So, you can't just keep pretending that gas engines are the thing and keep the vendors happy. You got to evolve.
1: Well, here's why that analogy doesn't quite hold. Okay. If they want to make shorter orders, that is entirely the prerogative. We cannot legislate to them how many episodes they make of anything. And that's not what we're trying to do. All we're saying is, regardless of how many episodes you make, there is a system that has been mutually beneficial for 50, 60 years now, which is you order a TV show, the people who know what they're doing, teach the younger people on that TV show how to make TV shows. And then those people go on to make other TV shows. That is the system that has made them
2: billions and billions and billions of dollars without really having to do anything. Except pay these writers and creators hundreds of millions of dollars. But yes. Right. But here's the thing. They have hundreds of millions of dollars. They have
1: billions and billions of dollars and they're scrimping in the margins. This is penny wise and pound foolish because it makes their balance sheets, their quarterly reports very slightly better every quarter. And what they're losing is a massive amount of institutional knowledge. And we're not asking for enormous amounts of money for writers to be on the set or for writers to be around in post. It's not, it's a rounding error. Apple just gave back their shareholders and in stock buybacks, they spent $90 billion buying their own stock and giving the money back to their shareholders. If they had given their shareholders $89.6 billion, they alone could have paid the writers everything we're asking for. So it's not like they don't have the money. They're just deciding that it doesn't matter whether people learn how to do the job and it, which is so ironic because people learning how to do the job while on TV shows as young writers, is exactly what
2: has allowed them to make all this content in perpetuity for decade after decade. So Sierra Ornelis, who's a creator that you've worked with on Rutherford mm-hmm. Falls, she had a great tweet storm yesterday in which she said that she got her start on Happy Endings, an ABC show in 2010. She said on that show, there were 17 writers on season one, including seven staff writers, the introductory position. Over three seasons, there were 23 writers on the show, and 21 of them eventually became showrunners. Yeah. And she ended it with, so obviously this would never happen today.
1: Yeah. I went back and looked at my, the shows I've worked on. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the on The Office, if you look at the IMDb of The Office, something like 11 of those writers became first-time showrunners, including me. I left and created Brooklyn Nine-Nine with Dan Gore. Brooklyn Nine-Nine staff created like eight or 10 first-time showrunners. And that was Dan teaching them what I taught him that Greg Daniels had taught me. Like, this is the system. It's a really good system. Again, mutually beneficial. Like, we get to make a living and have a career. The studios get this endless cascade of new ideas, new showrunners, new content that fuels their content pipelines. And they don't, either they're ignorant that this is the case or they don't care, but what's They're coming not down there. Are you
2: kidding? They have very sophisticated <laughs> lawyers and business development people that know exactly the cascade but see, of
1: money. here's the thing. The, yes, they do, but do they know exactly the degree to which that cascade of money has been generated by this kind of oral tradition, this active passing down of information about show running from person to person? I'm not sure they do. Or if they do, they don't care. And what's coming down the pike for them is a bunch of first-time showrunners who simply don't know how to do the job and a bunch of shows. like you think it's expensive to pay writers Guild minimum to be on the set? Wait until show after show after show is breaking down and falling apart and having to take production pauses because people just aren't prepared to actually do the job that they've been hired to do.
2: So the other thing that the studios would argue here is that these conversations and the Guild jumping up and down about compensation ignores the overscale. Compensation, meaning, you know, the guild negotiates what the minimums are, and then your agents negotiate beyond that. And the guild doesn't actually have much access to the money that people are making beyond the scale compensation. And we've seen over the past decade the explosion in fees paid to these writers for, you know, you used to make a million, two million if you were an an overall deal at a studio. Now you get five to 10 per year. You know, these top writers and these are friends of yours and you could make $100 million as a writer. That was not possible under the previous system except for the very top people. So what do you think when they say, you know, that we shouldn't be talking about the CEO pay of these companies without mentioning the fact that the upper echelon of TV writers have become enormously wealthy over the past decade?
1: Well, like every other labor force in America, what has happened is there's been this striation, right? Where the folks at the very top make an enormous amount of money and everyone else makes minimum. That's really the problem here. You're right. The guild only legislates minimums. That's all we have the ability to do, but 50% of the writers in the guild now make minimum, including a lot of people who were making really good livings just a little while ago, because what's happening is, you know, you had an episodic quote. If you were a writer, let's say you've been in the business for eight years, 10 years, you're a co-EP, you're a co-executive producer. You have a quote, your quote is $35,000 an episode, right? Well, you used to get on a show that had 22 episodes. That's a lot of money. Now you're on a show that makes eight episodes. And that show might take just as long to make as this show that did 22. So you get eight paychecks instead of 22 it's spread out over a year. You're amortized down to a weekly guild minimum. So if they're going to pay everybody minimums, the guild has no choice, but to say, okay, we got to raise minimums as much as we can. And they like to point out all the time that there's this echelon at the top of people who have these mega deals. That's true, but that's a very small number of people. There's 12,000 people in this guild. And you can't say, look at the top 20 earners and that's a you know proof that everybody's doing great when 50% of the guild is working for the minimum allowable by law.
2: Well, and many aren't working at all. That's another wrinkle right. in the guild negotiation is that the argument the studios make is that this guild is run, or they would probably say hijacked, by people who consider striking to be their job because they don't have a job as writers and they want to fight, fight, fight because that's what they do. And it's not representative of the average writer who is actually doing okay because of the overscale compensation and the payments that they get for producing and all the other things that they do. And that's the real problem here. Well, I can promise you that none of us want
1: to be doing this. It is not, (laughs) you don't get into writing to walk in circles in front of the Paramount lot for four hours a day. You get into writing to write. Speak for
2: yourself, man, I need my steps.
1: <laughs> and the other problem here again is like when the middle class of any workforce is hollowed out to the degree that it's been hollowed out in writing then you have again a couple folks at the very top who are doing really well everybody else is either making minimum or not employed or working 8 weeks a year maximum or whatever and so yeah those people are fired up they're really angry because what had been a promising career, a a ladder of success. I'm going to go here then I'm going to get this job and I'll move up and I'll become a producer and I'll write a pilot and all those things that used to exist. Those are gone now. You're lucky if you work 12 weeks a year. And if you work 12 weeks a year at guild minimum, you are not making enough money to live in New York or Los Angeles. So yeah, people are angry. People are mad. And I wouldn't say the guild has been hijacked by those people. I would say that those people are the predominant members of the guild in terms of numbers. And they're angry about what has happened. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't the fault of like, you know, whatever, young, angry activists. This is the fault of the companies who have completely upended the pay structure and the career structure of the industry to the point where people
2: feel like we have no choice but to draw a line in the sand right now. Haven't there been, at least from the big picture perspective, positive developments over the past decade for writers? I mean, you look at the people who are television writers these days, it's much more diverse than it used to be. There are more writers because there are, more shows we can talk about like, what you just did, the number of episodes and the kind of the, the the writing conditions. But from some perspectives, it's been a heyday for writers. Yeah,
1: no question. I mean, there it's not like nothing good has come out of this. There have been shows and ideas made that never would have been made before because they didn't fit neatly into the box of network. TV yeah, would or, the good place even...
2: have been a network comedy in you know fifteen years ago? Maybe not.
1: Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, far beyond that, there's, you know, Primo was written for ABC originally. It's a show about a Mexican American family. It was, we wrote it for ABC. Shea wrote it for ABC in 2017 and it was passed on. So, and now, you know, five years later, Freevee exists and Freevee picks it up and makes it into a show. So without question, it's better. There are more interesting ideas being produced, more shows being produced from, from, folks who were traditionally marginalized by the television industry, that part's great. The part that isn't great is if that's the ceiling that you just make one season of a show or two seasons of a show, and then you can't get another job, you can't work again, you can't find the next step on that ladder. Well, that's better than it was, arguably, it's still not good. And you don't want to get into a situation where folks get their foot in the door and then the door slams closed on their foot and causes them enormous amounts of pain. And they never actually get through the door. And that's what a lot of folks are finding out now is that, like, just at the moment that the world seems to be broadening to include their voices and their ideas in the panoply of ideas that are aired by television, that's the end of the line. And that can't, that that's not that useful or helpful to their lives and careers.
0: When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
2: I saw some media coverage this week of the special place that Netflix... Has in this whole conversation. Some outlets have said that this is being called the Netflix strike on the picket lines. Do you agree with that? Do you feel that there is special animosity out there towards Netflix for having created the streaming model and implemented some of the practices like lower episode counts and buyouts and all that stuff that is kind of coming home to roost in the strike? Or is it not true?
1: I think to some degree it's true because. You know, when the, when the book is written about this era of entertainment, the story will be that no company, I think in the history of Hollywood did more to upend and revolutionize the way content is made in a short amount of time in, in a blink of an eye. I mean, you're talking about legacy companies that have been around for 70, 80 years, all completely upended by one company over less than a decade. So to some extent, yes. And you know, all these other companies, all the streaming wars started with Netflix, all of the kind of shifts in terms of episode order, the the model for payment for backend payment, all that stuff, it all came from Netflix. They invented all of it. So to some degree, yes, they are bearing the brunt of it. However, the other companies are doing the same stuff now, right? So, Maybe Netflix started it or paved the way, but it's not like the other companies are doing anything different. They're all doing the same stuff now. And as, and the truth is that as long as the companies insist on fit, forming this kind of fake trade alliance that the AMPTP, which is a, it's a not very, fake, it's a
2: real alliance.
1: It's a real alliance, but it's also hilarious that the, you know, these are like eight of the biggest media companies in the world, the, the eight biggest media companies in the world and they all hate each other, and they're all competition. And then every three years, they come together and link arms and sing "Kumbaya" and decide to try to crush labor as a singular unit.
2: Well, they're but they're also not really in the same businesses. All of them, and I mean, I can only imagine right. Tim Cook and Apple being like, "Wait, what am I? What group are we involved in? We're in a we're in a trade association with Paramount Global, which is worth eleven billion dollars, and we're Apple, and we're worth a trillion. Yeah, that's another issue, and that's a game theory.
1: Problem we're trying to work out too. To what degree are they, in fact, in any way, shape, or form aligned? Like, if you're Sony or Universal, you know, content is 95% of your company. And if you're Apple or Amazon, it's what, a 12th of 1% or something? I mean, Amazon makes content to get people to pay $99 a year or whatever it is so they can get toilet paper in 48 hours. Like, they're not the same company. So, You know, is there extra animosity for Netflix? Maybe um, because they're the most famous and they're the biggest and and the kind of originators of a lot of this stuff. But everyone who works at every company is feeling the same stuff happen to them.
2: Yeah, we wrote in my newsletter a little about this issue of whether the studios could be picked off one by one. And everyone I've talked to said that that's not really feasible and it would just cause chaos because ultimately you'd have to go back to all of them. But like I could see at some point apple being like guys what are we doing here really like it's been six months we got no shows and trying to put pressure and hopefully there'll be a little bit of a jury dynamic that works on the studio side that kind of gets them to come to a an agreement
1: yeah it's possible i suppose i really don't know no one knows really what they're talking about behind closed doors i mean. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential problems and issues with going at it one by one. We did that with the agencies during the agency campaign. that right. I was also on the committee for the different obviously there is like no one was not working. No one was pounding the pavement in front of studios. And so well. and
2: there's only like six or seven agencies. Like I mean, you guys focus on the eight big media companies, but the AMPTP actually has hundreds of members. Right.
1: And so I don't have any idea whether that's a viable strategy for us or them. That's be above my pay grade. But as long as they're in a trade alliance, we have to negotiate with the trade alliance.
2: So one of the things I've always loved about your career is that you seem to be one of those guys that helps others, that tries to bring new voices into the conversation. And you're doing it again with this new Amazon show, Primo. Shea Serrano, former Ringer colleague, he's not there anymore. But how'd you guys hook up in the first place? I was a fan
1: of Shay's writing. He wrote about the NBA Mm -hmm. and hip hop and a bunch of other stuff. And I got a call from my agent years ago that said he has, uh, he's coming out to LA to take meetings because he has an idea for a TV show. So I was like, I'd love to meet that guy. So I just sat with him in my office for like an hour. We mostly just talked about the NBA. Um, And at the end of it, I was like, Hey man, I think you're great. I think you have a great voice. I'd love to try to help you develop TV show. So he picked me. He liked the shows I'd worked on. We developed Primo together. He told me the idea for the show, and I immediately thought it's basically about a kid, a 16-year-old kid, Mexican-American kid in San Antonio, whose dad is not in the picture. Um, he's raised by his mom, and his mom has five brothers, uh, and his five uncles are really, really specific, kind of intense personalities. So it's right. a guy with no dad, but five dads is the way I thought right. of it. Right. Um, it's basically a live action inside out. It's like he's got these five voices in his head all the time who are telling him what to do and how to live his life. And he wrote the script and the script is great. It's really funny. It's really sweet. It's kind of a throwback show. Like it has the vibe of like a a sitcom from, you know, from like the, what I think of as the golden era of sitcoms. It's just got a ton of jokes and it's really warm and has a fun kind of family dynamic to it. And we made it for ABC. They passed in 2018. And we just kept slipping it to people as these new places cropped up. This is another good thing, by the way. And when you're talking about positive aspects of the last decade, there's all these new outlets who are making stuff. And Freebie popped up. And the woman who was in charge of the content for Freebie is a woman named Lauren Anderson, who was at NBC and covered Parks and Rec and some of the other shows I've worked on. We slipped it to her. She loved it, ordered it. We made the show. And I think it turned out
2: really well. It'll be on uh, next week on Freebie. Now, how involved are you? in these shows that you are not the creator of? Like, cause you, you've had your hand in like hacks and Master of None, they come out of your pod at NBC. Like how does that work? And what is your involvement once the shows get going?
1: It honestly varies from show to show. So Jen Stasky, Paul Downs and Lucia and Yellow pitched Hacks to me. Jen had worked with me on Parks and Rec and then all through The Good Place. They pitched me that idea. That idea was so fully formed and fleshed out that i was like this is great and i have nothing to offer you except i'll give you directions to the various lots that we have to pitch to and that's that's about all i can help you with so in that case i was like i just lent whatever weight i have in a in a pitch room
2: well and your deal them.
1: right and my yeah and my deal yeah and producers and and folks who come along with that with my little kind of crew and when hbo max bought it like I was like, "Look, I will help you. However, you want an extra set of eyes. You want me to read scripts. You want me to weigh in on stuff. Just like, I'm here when you need me." But they were, had it so well thought out and were had such a good, you know, experience making TV. They didn't need me that much. They really didn't. I read scripts. I gave them my thoughts. I gave them notes. I I read stage directions during during throughs But like they just had it so fully in their brains that there wasn't a need for me to be a, a like heavy handed with Primo is a different story. Shade never written anything for TV. So in that show, I was in the writer's room every day. I was sort of running the writer's room with him, teaching him and the other folks how to like break stories and do certain basic things that like Jen, Paul and Lucia didn't, or had already learned. So it really varies from show to show with master of none. It was somewhere in between. It was closer to the hacks model because Alan Yang um, had, worked with me for years and years and years and was super smart and knew how to do all this stuff and and i was more of a like advisor i helped in editing a little bit because they had done less of that so it's not a one-size-fits-all thing i sort of fill whatever role the particular project needs me to fill
2: and it brings it back to this whole notion of having the writers in the room and on set being able to learn from you
1: Totally. Like Alan Yang, again, on Master of None, he had worked with me for the entire run of Parks and Rec and had risen up to be like a sort of co-EP. He had covered the set for episodes he'd written a million times. Um, You know, he pretty much knew at that point, everything that I can teach anybody. And so there wasn't a need for me to be like hands-on while he was, you know, I helped with, there are certain things about starting a show, running your own show that you don't know yet that you have to learn but he's a sponge, that guy and Aziz is too. And they, they learned extremely quickly how to do things exactly the way they wanted to do them. And then with Primo on the other end, it's, it was Shay. We hired a bunch of young writers, most of whom had never worked in TV. There were a couple of more experienced folks, but that was more of a like step-by-step, okay, let's walk you through this. Here's how you do this. Here's what a story is. Here's how to be on the set, all that kind of stuff. So they either had the training already and were ready to go or needed the training. And then you give them the training. That's sort of the way it goes.
2: All right, Mike. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the new show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you a fan of the book club franchise? What do you think? (laughs) Uh, You never know. You're an enlightened guy, progressive. You could maybe be into a movie series about 70-something women who get together and have adventures with their book club. I do enjoy the, like, ensemble old people movie theme. Like, Last Vegas, I remember, was one of them. Sure. 80 for Brady. There
1: was a good one a while ago, actually, that I liked with Tim Allen called, like, Road Dogs or Old Dogs. Wild or Hogs.
2: Wild Hogs, yeah. Wild I liked that Hogs, one. there you go. Yeah. yeah um, this one has Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Candice Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen. And they have an adventure in Italy. And it's a <laughs> sequel to a movie that came out in 2018. And amazingly earned $104 million worldwide. So no surprise, it got a sequel. There's nothing for
1: moms right now in theaters. We got Mario, we got Guardians of the Galaxy. This is great. Great time. It's Mother's
2: Day. It is Mother's Day. The tracking is 10 million. I'm going to take the under on this one. The first one opened to 13 million. And I just don't think it's there. I think that older people are still having trouble coming back to the theaters and this may play longer because these audiences take a little while. It's probably going to open to less than 80 for Brady, which was a remarkably similar themed movie that came out a couple months ago. It just similar cast
1: as well. Yeah.
2: Replace books with football. And it's basically the same thing. And it had Tom Brady. They also
1: lowered the price for the majority of the tickets. For that. they movie, did, correct? we'll see
2: if they do that this weekend. It's being released by Focus Features, not Paramount, which uh, released the original. I'm not sure what happened there, but Paramount did the pricing thing for 80 for Brady, and this is a different studio, so I don't know if they'll do that. So Paramount made the first book club, and now Universal's making the second one. Yeah, that happens sometimes with sequels. You know, if the studio, the original studio, usually has an option. To make the sequel. If they pass, it'll go into turnaround and anyone else can pick it up. It might make sense for a company like Focus. Focus releases the Downton Abbey movies, which is a similar audience. They probably feel like they can reach that audience and do a good job marketing. But uh, I just think 10 seems high for this movie. Uh, I wanna be proven wrong. I want these older ladies to have their box office moment. They should lower the ticket prices. Old people love discounts. Let them bring a coupon. They do. I know. You're going to go to the, like, 4 in the afternoon showing. It's probably going to be sold out. But then the 8.30, will, be, will have plenty of seats available.
1: 20% off, 8.30.
2: <laughs> All right. Enough ages jokes for today. I want to thank my guest, Mike Schur. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. I want to thank our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm.